Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block, and we have a very exciting episode of the show for you today. Joining us on the other side of the mic is our guest, Vincent Gustorf, head of DeFi and digital asset analytics at Moody's. Before we dive in, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. What's next for digital currency after a brutal 2022? While the core promise of crypto hasn't changed, digital currency is still forming the base layer for a new global commerce infrastructure. From merchants at the point of sale to corporations that want to pay suppliers and even employees more efficiently. Circle has always seen itself as a connector of the traditional world and the new world of digital currency. It's like building houses. What's the foundation and can you get the foundation right? Throughout Q1, I'm happy to host leaders from Circle here on The Scoop to give listeners the chance to hear how one of crypto's most prominent builders is paving the way for digital currency utility. Visit circle.com scoop for more information. Have you ever wanted to use DeFi without being seen? Railgun is a leading DeFi privacy solution on Ethereum. It's also a leading privacy solution operating across Binance Smart Chain, Arbitrum, and Polygon 2. And yes, that includes DEX trading. DeFi and privacy together at last. Visit railgun.org to find out more. This episode is also brought to you by Flare, an EVM-based layer one blockchain with secure, decentralized access to information from other chains and the internet. Flare's native interoperability protocols provide developers with a variety of high integrity price and event data, including detailed transaction proofs from other chains and information from Web2 APIs. Build better and connect everything at flare.network. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblock.co slash terms dash service. Vincent, thanks for stopping by. Sorry uh, I couldn't see you on Monday. How's the conference been treating you? Uh, to be fair, I didn't have time to go to the conference uh, because everything that happened uh, on the market, uh, we've been working nonstop since the conference started. So that's a little bit unfortunate. But hopefully next year, things will be a little bit more quiet. So what's sort of behind the busyness? What? Well, as you know, the banking sector at the moment is um, going through a pretty rough patch. So that keeps us busy. Um, and also, we've had uh, a pretty in- important milestone to meet with the um, within kickoff of the what we call the DLT pilot regime. I mean, it's, it's pretty technical, but basically, it's going to enable um, market participants in Europe to experiment with uh, bonds on blockchains. So we, ha- we we needed to get a view on that, and of course, there's been uh, this whole. Uh, thing about uh, the DPEG of the USDC, as you know, which uh, mm. which for us had pretty uh, massive repercussions. Yeah, we definitely want to get into the repercussions of that and how, you, you know, how as a market we sort of move forward. Yeah. But maybe before we dive in um, a bit deeper, you can walk us through exactly the role of Moody's in our capital markets. Um, you know, most people probably know it's a credit ratings agency. It adds right. a level of transparency to the marketplace so that investors can make 
more informed decisions about the assets into which they're uh, allocating capital. Yeah. Maybe walk us through a little bit more and then it's digital assets journey. Yeah, great question. So as you said, Moody's is a rating agency. Um, so wh what it means effectively is that we're going to look at uh, the credit quality of uh, a bunch of issuers such as corporates, banks, sovereigns, you name it. Um, we're rating a quite great array of, uh, of issuers there. And we're going to assess their credit worthiness. So in other words, that's about looking at the debt instrument. It can be a loan, can be a bond, and trying to estimate uh, the uh, recovery prospect of the creditors in case this company defaults. So in other words, we're going to uh, estimate the expected loss in case of default. Now, you asked a very good question about how um, blockchain is affecting our business. Well, the repercussions are actually pretty drastic because from our perspective, blockchain is going to transform finance. Um, that's what we call effectively digital finance internally. So essentially, that's about understanding how market participants will leverage all this new technology to make, to make the whole transaction process uh, faster, cheaper, and more efficient. So yeah, exciting times for us. So you have DeFi in your title, which is exciting. Yes. Um, how, how can you sort of... How can you sort of get a sense of the credit risk of a given lending protocol and how is it different from the traditional capital markets and the way in which you'd sort of yeah. suss out the credit risk of a, of a given, given um, you know, bond? Yeah. Um, as you said, it's, it's quite different because when we're looking at the debt instrument, essentially you have what we call a promise to pay. Mm -hmm. So if you're a company, you're going to put on the market a bond, let's say a $500 million bond. Mm -hmm. And as um, an investor, you're going to purchase part of this bond and expect uh, to see your investment repaid in full when the bond matures. Now, in DeFi, that's a different story because those entities are not really issuing debt, right? They're issuing tokens. And it's not like those tokens have a maturity date. And therefore... From our perspective, it kind of um, prompts us to rethink a little bit about what credit risks mean. Mm. We don't think that we'll be able to rate everything, but we need to have a view on what's going on in the DeFi market, and in particular about how traditional um, actors like banks and asset managers could uh, be exposed to crypto assets and among those crypto assets to stable coins, which for us are a very important part of, uh, of the situation. So how do you sort of, um, how do you sort of analyze the credit risk of a stable coin? Yeah. Um, so now we can go into the, the technical details and I don't want to bore your listeners too much. So I'll try to keep it at a high level and make it as interesting as possible. So, First off, as I said, when you're looking at a bond, it's really about, as an investor, ensuring that you'll get what you expect. But then when you look at a stablecoin, what do you expect exactly? Mm. Do you expect, uh, well, you expect essentially to be able to uh, get it paid for $1 whenever, when you want it. But then 
when would you consider that this promise has not been met? Mm-hmm. Is it when uh, the stablecoin um, has fallen slightly below its peg, but then what does it mean? Mm-hmm. Or it, does it mean that you want to get to be able to be repaid every day, including on the weekends? Mm-hmm. So the first part of our assessment is to determine what does this promise means effectively. Um, the other part is about looking how the stablecoin is structured. There are many models out there, as you know. Um, mm-hmm. You have the fiat peg stablecoins. Uh, you have the crypto collateralized stablecoins. And we're also looking at other kind of projects where uh, we may have financial institutions uh, putting a stablecoin on the market uh, that's going to be collateralized by something completely different. So that's really the two parts of our assessment. First, trying to understand what's the promise and then understand how the operator plan to fulfill this promise. So have you created sort of a um, stablecoin rating system? Is that out in the market? Is it something that's being developed? Um, on that, I can't, I can't really comment because it's, a, it's still a work in progress. Um, we are a regulated entity and unfortunately, we are scrutinized pretty extensively by by a bunch of regulators. And therefore, there are things that we can and can't say. So I'm very sorry, but I'll have to pass on this one. Which products do you have in market? Can you talk about what might be public already? Well, let, let's put it that way. For us, what we look at as a rating agency are, are three things. So the first bucket is to understand how blockchain as a technology uh, is going to affect uh, the market infrastructure, how it's going to be used by the operator to modernize their systems. So that's what we call the bucket one. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bucket two is going to be about uh, understanding the assets that are born on a blockchain, like stable coins, for instance. Mm-hmm. That's going to be the second bucket. And the third bucket is going to be about uh, assessing how the first two buckets will affect the credit quality of the traditional issuers that we rate. I know that uh, mm. for your listeners, uh, which are investing directly into crypto, they want to get a sense of how crypto is going to have, is going to move up or down, but that's not really what we do. We can't really provide with um, a view on the direction of a, of a market price. That's not our job. Our job is really to assess credit quality, and therefore we need to ensure that all companies that may be inclined to purchase crypto for one reason or another are, are well identified. Also, another part of our job is to look at um, traditional debt instruments that are issued on a blockchain. And that, that's a really exciting thing because we do see a lot of, uh, of transformation coming up. That third bucket's pretty interesting. Um, yeah. To, to what extent do you think you know, once crypto is introduced to the balance sheet of a company or once uh, blockchain technology is maybe introduced to the technology um, strategy of a given op- operation within a company, d- does it have an impact? Like, do you sense that there's a, and is it a good impact to the credit quality um, yeah. of a given entity? Yeah, great question. I think it really depends. Um, so there are, there are many applications. The, fir- the first one that you mentioned is really about the technology and how it's going to enable a company to, to basically to perform more efficiently. Um, 
And on that, it's it's a kind of transformation that we tend to view positively because we think that this uh, technology has a lot of promise, but it comes with two kind of considerations. The first one is about the investment required. Investing in crypto is actually pretty expensive because you need to hire a bunch of people, you need to spend a lot on legal fees, that sort of things. So there's a consideration of you know when you'll get your money back. Um, but we, we are confident that this, this will change uh, where the market is going. Now, another aspect to take into consideration is you know, when you're not using blockchain as a technology, but when you're um, investing in crypto assets or be, be exposed one way or another to crypto assets. Um, and there, there's basically two ways you can be exposed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one is on, uh, and I'm going to, to go a little bit into the accounting, but I'll try mm-hmm. to keep it at, at a high level. So on the asset side, um, that's basically when you're a company, you're going to purchase crypto. This is not something that we see very often. Um, so far, crypto is, is quite volatile. Um, it's liquid, but uh, because it's volatile, it's not as helpful as cash. So from a, a liquidity standpoint, we've seen companies trying to stay away from, from crypto. And in particular, when we look at banks, um, their regulators have been quite keen to say to banks, okay, um, if you want to invest in crypto, well, first, uh, we strongly discourage you to do that. But if you want to invest in crypto, that's going to be uh, pretty costly for you in terms of how much money you will need to put in front of your investment. So that's for the asset part of the equation. As far as the uh, liability part is concerned, so the other side of the balance sheet, uh, what we've seen uh, with the recent banking failures is that um, they were actually, um, at least uh, for um, for Silvergate, it was partly related to that. It, it was about crypto investors uh, or crypto companies uh, putting some of their deposit into, uh, into the bank. And for the bank, that's a, li- a liability. And because we're talking about crypto, which again can, you know, can move up and move down very quickly, uh, when you have crypto deposits, they are not actually that stable. So that's the other part of the equation. We've definitely seen them not be as stable as we'd like many of these yeah. assets over the course of since the beginning. Yeah, so, yeah, there's been a lot of volatility indeed. Can you hear the construction guys behind the room? <laughs> I don't even know what they're talking about. <laughs> this morning I was screaming. I was like, why are you guys talking outside my window? But I should have said it in French. Oh, they don't even speak French. Oh, sorry. That's fine. Okay. Hey, um, I, I think I think they answered in a language that wasn't French. <laughs> I don't even. So I think I thought it was Italian. I I don't really know. Um. So. I know you can't comment on whether, like, what exactly is being developed, but can you sort of indulge me in, in walking through, like, what could possibly be incorporated in some sort of scoring system for all these assets? Like, and what might be different? Is it is it the, the centralization of it? Is it um, the amount of node operators? Perhaps is, are those node operators uh, distributed enough? I, I can I can actually just answer the question for you, maybe Vincent. I don't know, um, but. W- what, what sort of attributes are we looking at there? Well, 
One area we've been looking at pretty closely uh, is the topic of um, of bond issued on blockchain technology. Uh, what we've seen on that front is that um, the blockchain technology underpinning those uh, those structures are actually largely private permissions. So it's it's in sharp contrast to the kind of tokens your your listeners are usually used to. But there, there's good reason for market infrastructure operators to use private permission blockchains. Uh, the first one is the control. Um, when you're trading bonds, you need to understand who are your partners because you have a bunch of uh, anti-money laundering and uh, KYC requirements that you need to fulfill. So that's that's really super important. And the other area is cyber risk. So you know DeFi has been hacked uh, pretty significantly in recent years. When you're looking at a private permission blockchain that really reduces the the risk of hack because if you want to attack the blockchain infrastructure first you need to go through the differences of the operator um, apart from cyber risk what we're also looking at is uh, the degree of resiliency of the platform today bonds are traded on systems which you know are sometimes a little bit old but they've been working quite well with blockchain and uh, the rest of uh, what we call distributed ledger technologies, there's, you know, it's a novel thing. We don't have the track record, and therefore we want to be sure that the company has in place um, good backup facilities in case something goes wrong. Another aspect we're looking at is what we call the asset representation. So essentially, um, when you're a creditor and the company in which you've invested goes bankrupt. There's, you know, there's been years and years of bankruptcy filing in front of court, and you have a good understanding of where you land in terms of uh, the hierarchy of all the creditors. But for a digital bond, that's a different story because what you're going to hold is, well, could be a token actually, and then what does it mean? Therefore, for us, it's very important to ensure that if you are holding a bond that's effectively a token, you need to have the same rights as a traditional bond. The core promise of crypto hasn't changed. Stable coins can bring faster payments at internet scale, from merchants at the point of sale to corporations that want to pay suppliers or even employees more efficiently. Circle has always seen itself as a connector of the traditional world and the new world of digital currency. USDC is more than just a stable coin. USDC is also an open source platform. When our transactions are actually final and you can't change them anymore, that's another great quality property of cash because when it switches hand, it's fine. Right? Can you digitize all those good quality properties and bring that in a digital form? USDC by Circle is at the forefront of this innovation. And that's why The Scoop is partnering with the folks at Circle to tell you guys why and how our industry is moving. A lot of us who have built USDC, myself included and Jeremy included, we are technologists. So we approach this problem from a technology point of view. Visit circle.com scoop for more information. Have you ever wanted to use DeFi without being seen? Railgun is a leading DeFi privacy solution on Ethereum. And it's also a leading privacy solution operating across Binance Smart Chain, Arbitrum, and Polygon too. Shield your funds and use them privately on your favorite DeFi apps. Railgun's cutting edge zero knowledge system encrypts your data from public view. And yes, that includes DEX trading. DeFi and privacy together at last. Visit railgun.org to find out more.
This episode is also brought to you by Flare, an EVM-based layer one blockchain with secure access to information from other chains and the internet. Flare's state connector acquires detailed transaction data from blockchains and information from Web2 APIs in a decentralized way, so it can be used securely, scalably, and trustlessly in applications running on the network. Paired with the Flare Time Series Oracle for decentralized price and time series data, Flare delivers a developer focused blockchain with secure native access to more off-chain data than ever before. Build better and connect everything at flare.network. So it's it's interesting because when we think about crypto, there's an understanding or a view that it introduces is more risk, specifically a technical risk via the hacks and breaches about which you're delineating yeah but when you think about the bond market specifically if if a lot of it if, if a lot of that issuance is happening on the blockchain does that lower the risk there if it's a if it's private in your view and and then the follow-up question is when do you see that coming to fruition and what are the impediments to um the sort of market structure of the bond market moving to blockchain Mm. I think the, the, those two questions are, are really related, so I'll try to answer both at the same time. I would say that um, one of the problems we see is the fact of, that there may be a fragmentation. Um, so as I said, we're talking about private permission blockchains. Um, and therefore, every time you want to uh, participate in a network, you get you need to get some kind of permissions. Now, if we see a proliferation of platforms with each uh, having its own requirements, then that means every time I'm playing to a new platform. So that's that's risk number one. Um, risk number two is the legal risk. Um, blockchain is a relatively new technology, at least uh, by you know regulator standards. And therefore, if you want to have this kind of infrastructure ready to experiment with new kind of uh, of investments. Well, you need to have a proper legal framework in place, and that's that's a big uh, a big impediment because, as you know, uh, all the legal stuff doesn't really move at the st- the same speed as the technology stuff. And lastly, there's the risk of um, having all the right um, components ready, because the blockchain itself is just one component you need to have stuff to put on the blockchains. Uh, you can tokenize the bond, right? But that's part of the equation. The other part of the equation is that you have you need to have some kind of tokenized cash so that you can exchange your bonds for something. And this tokenized cash um, so far has been largely missing because there's no uh, central bank digital currency available. Of course, we could use other uh, means of payment like stablecoin, but the, and um, I don't want to antagonize your, your listeners, but we don't really think that they are as safe as central bank currencies, as far as credit risk concerned is, uh, as far as credit risk is concerned. So yeah, th- those are really the the impediments and risk we see at this stage. Can you break that down? Why, in your view, um, why stablecoins have more credit risk than CBDCs? Is it? Is it a derivative of sort of the multiple counterparties that are involved, the sort of makeup of certain offshore ones? What's the sort of 
uh, thesis underpinning that statement? Yeah, so I don't want to put all the all the stable coin in the same bucket because we do see significant variations. Um, but the first thing is that you have certain stable coins that are more transparent than others. So I'm not going to mention names, but there are certain projects out there uh, which have been criticized for their lack of transparency. So. For us, as a rating agency, it kind of uh, puts us in a difficult position to, in, to understand really the r- degree of risk, because ultimately we would rely on the information disclosed by the stable operator. And point number two, a central bank digital currency, as its name implies, is kind of currency that's issued by a central bank. So it means essentially that if you're purchasing a central bank digital currency, the risk you're going to take is going to be akin to the risk of the central bank. Um, the central bank that we have in developed countries are backed by you know, the full strength of their state. And when you look at the, 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 the credit quality of the US or of the European Union, we're talking about AAA kind of credit quality. So in our jargon, that means that it's the highest credit quality we can find. For other kinds of, um, you know, for stable coins, we're talking about projects which have been around for less than a decade. Okay, mm-hmm. so some of them are good and are, and are promising, but can I, don't can I ask you a weird question and, and interrupt yeah, sure. you for a second? This is <laughs> it's it's a strange one, but if you were to if you were to lump all of them together and just guess, just guess what the credit rating of all those would be lumped together. What? What are we talking about? Like, you know, could be double A. No. For well, you're you're raising a very good point because when you look at what happened with USD coin, um, we've seen a, a pretty significant JPEG um, that was largely driven by the fact that they had some cash at Silicon Valley Bank. Of course, they didn't have all their cash there, but they still had a pretty significant portion of their reserves. Yeah, I think three point three billion. Right. So what does that mean from a credit standpoint? That means that you have an exposure to uh, the credit risk of a counterparty whose rating may not be that good. And therefore, this, it's going to affect your, uh, your, your ability to, to redeem your stablecoin. Of course, I know that Circle has taken measures to uh, you know, diversify uh, its number of partners. But still, for us, that's a little bit of a concern. Um, in particular, because after what happened, we can't really exclude that it's going to be increasingly difficult for mm-hmm. stablecoin operators to work with a diversified pool of partners. Um, so yeah, that's that's our concern um, for for stablecoins at this stage. The the counterparty risk. Yeah, that's interesting. In one way, like even even the more counterparties they add, it doesn't necessarily decrease the risk if the risk of the counterparty is worse than maybe the previous one right if, if you're adding if you're adding two counterparties and they're both less reliable than if you had one previously before you're yeah. actually adding more risk exactly that's going to be a function of you, the diversity of your counterparties but also of the credit quality of each counterparty you're absolutely right so what else are you excited about? Um, we are ex- also excited about asset tokenization. 
So we've been talking about so far tokenizing you know, debt instruments, but tokenizing assets is very promising. That's let's not uh, shy away from saying that it's it's challenging to to implement. It's going to take a lot of time, but um, I think that the prospects of turning illiquid assets into tokens and then bring liquidity thanks to the blockchain, uh, it really opens realms of new possibilities. So for us, that's uh, that's a great opportunity for the financial markets and for, for every retail investors. Go, just going back to CBDCs for a second, um, yeah. I guess there's another question of how the banking industry, the banking sector might react if a CBDC was issued, because it could potentially shrink maybe their respective deposit bases. Yeah, so you're right. That's uh, one of the channels we've identified that could potentially weaken the credit quality of banks. And sorry, I keep talking about credit quality because for me, it's, uh, it's a little bit of a, of a safe, self-explanatory word, but uh, I should try to use a, a simpler word, so I'll try to do so going forward. So yeah, um, it's, it could lower the deposits of banks, but central banks are well aware of this issue. And there's a number of mechanisms that enable central banks to alleviate this problem. In Europe, for instance, the European Central Bank is thinking about putting a cap on the maximum holdings of each citizens. Therefore, it's going to mechanically reduce the risk of transfer of uh, deposits into central bank digital currencies. So there's this risk of um, having deposits transformed into CBDCs. The other risk that we see is a possible decline in earnings that would stem from um, a reduced uh, use of uh, private money for, for transactions. So banks are getting some money out of that and they are in particular getting money from cross-border payments. If one day we see a world where each CBDC would be connected to another CBDC and uh, possibly you'd be able as a private citizen to send money wherever you want, uh, whenever you want in every part of the world, then banks may have something to lose, but that's going to take a lot of time, years, if not, uh, if not more. Mm. That's pretty interesting. Um, are there any other topics, you know, I know you weren't at the conference, but I'm sure maybe some of your colleagues or fellow um, market participants were there and maybe you got a sense of what the topic du jour might have been. What are people chatting about? Well, people we talk to are quite focused on regulation. Mm -hmm. Regulation is a big topic at the moment. As you know, there's a lot of stuff mm -hmm. going on in the US. In Europe, there's a lot of stuff going on and uh, we could say we the Mika. same about Asia. Yeah, Mika, that's right. So this, this uh, piece of regulation is what we call a directive in um, European jargon. So you could essentially think about that into a kind of uh, legislative bill that would need to be translated into the laws of each country in Europe. So that's how the European system is working. What Mika is doing is essentially putting guardrails around stablecoins. Um, Mika um, originated from um, the, the fear that European investors could one day purchase stablecoins that wouldn't be that stable. And therefore, 
it has set up multiple requirements that would compel stablecoin operator, for instance, to have uh, very liquid assets backing each of the stablecoin they issue. And also, there's going to be a cap on um, stablecoins that are not going to be um, in um, currencies of European countries. So essentially, that's going to be about putting a cap on the stablecoins in dollars. And there's, in turn, it kind of raised the question about whether the European ecosystem will be able to develop strong enough stablecoins labeled in euro. Um, we think that's possible, but um, there's a little bit of a gumball here from, from the European um, legislators. Yeah, regulation is definitely top of mind. Um, we'll see. We'll see how that unfolds. Um, I, I mean, we're seeing, I'm hearing tons of different companies um, looking to move uh, to new jurisdictions, whether that be, you know, Darabit from Panama to Dubai. Dubai is becoming a, a hotbed. Also, yeah. there's a question about Hong Kong opening back up and then the uh, European Union becoming more solidified around a certain set of principles and parameters, and then the U.S. kind of dragging its feet in the sand, as it were. Um, but we'll see. I'm curious to see if that's going to result in any significant movement of... I mean, we're all, already seeing uh, talent migration. I know of a number of trading firms that have moved a lot of the folks that touch derivatives to uh, Europe and other jurisdictions because of concerns about the U.S. But yeah, we'll see. It's, it's yeah. interesting. Yeah, exciting times. And very exciting. Vincent Gustorf, head of Define Digital Asset Analytics at Moody's. Thank you so much for stopping by the show today. Appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. And The Scoop will be back for you again very soon with another great guest. Have an awesome day.